every day I smoke cannabis. Every time you see me do an interview on the news, I've used cannabis. So if that's impaired, you know, I wonder what I would be like if I wasn't smoking. <laughs> That's Jody Emery, a.k.a. Canada's Princess of Pot. You may have heard of her husband, too, Mark Emery, also known as Mr. Spliff or the Marijuana Messiah. Together, they've become Canada's cannabis crusaders leading the charge on legalization. And handcuffs have been a big part of the journey. Hi, how are you? Bringing on the text. Yes, okay, yeah, thanks for doing this with us. Hey, of course. All right, let's go for a walk. I'm City News reporter Shauna Hunt, and on this episode of The Legal Podcast, I meet up with Jody in Toronto's marijuana mecca. She sparks a joint as we take a walk through Kensington Market. Right. Um, where do we want to do this? I mean, I, obviously, we got to follow the well, rules. Um, there is. You go yeah. find a little corner with a bench <laughs> if there's one. Right, let's yeah. do that. Yeah, I don't know why. You're right. Kensington Market is a little neighborhood full of one-way streets and colorful alleyways. This is a place where stoners have always been free to roam. Jody's Joint is a very fitting name for her coffee shop. Along with brew and beans, she's hoping one day a wide variety of cannabis strains will also be on the menu. But it's unlikely she'll legally be allowed to sell weed anytime soon. Jody has one heck of a rap sheet. So how many grams are in this joint that you rolled? Just out of curiosity. My joints are under a gram. It's about 0.75. So to some people, it's a little bigger than what they would smoke. But it's not a full gram joint. Would you smoke that whole joint? No. no. I mean, I, if, it was, if I was planning to really relax, yes. I'd smoke a whole joint. But typically what I do is I smoke half of it, and then I carry around what's called a dube tube. And you just... Your so joint, you can butt it out and put it and in there. It it's smell for proof. Later. Tuck it away with smell your proof. Yeah, so it's in your pocket. It doesn't stink like yeah, a dirty rag. Yeah, it's great. Now I have to ask: You are known as Canada's princess of pot. Just how do you feel about that that nickname? Well, Mark Emery started his activism almost 25 years ago for cannabis, and CNN called him the Prince of Pot in 1997. So long before I was an activist. And that name, he just ran with it, and other media started calling him that. So when I married him in 2006, I was just automatically called the Princess of Pop. But I used to love Star Wars, the original trilogy only, and Princess Leia, totally an inspiration, (laughs) tough chick, won't take any nonsense, Harrison Ford, oh, Han Solo, you know? So, like, I love it. You're like, I'll I'll own it. Princess Leia, Princess Jody. okay, sure. And you have owned it over all this time. I do want to talk a little bit about Mark because you and Mark um, have become Canada's sort of poster couple or power couple when it comes to pot activism. And Mark actually spent time in a federal prison mm-hmm. um, for selling, what was it, seeds? seeds? Yeah, and specifically it was for financing legalization. So another seed seller in Canada who had vehicles and cars and gold and all sorts of stuff, he got two years probation in Canada. Mark Emery, who gave away millions as documented by federal documents you can find online. I tweet them all the time. He gave millions of dollars to political parties, activist groups, court challenges, ballot initiatives. He changed the laws and changed the world with respect to pot from 1994 onward. The U.S. government said that arresting Mark Emery on July 29, 2005 was meant as a significant blow to the legalization movement, that he was the leader of a legalization movement, that he had been financing political groups active in the U.S. and beyond, and this is why they got him. So that was straight up political. That's why it took years to get through the court process to get him out of Canada, because he never even went to the U.S. He took a five-year plea deal instead of facing 30 years to life. 
And that's what happens in our criminal justice system in Canada and the U.S. They hit you with really big charges for conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I got with the Cannabis Culture franchises we opened up recently. And they offer you a better deal. So it's like, do you want to go to jail or not? And Mark took five years as a plea instead of life. So back then, though, Mark, like you said, he spent five years in a U.S. prison. And that didn't slow you down. That didn't muzzle you. No, I you had to step up. <laughs> you, you, you stood by him and continued yeah. on. Well, I moved to Vancouver in 2004, and Mark had Cannabis Culture magazine going on. It'll be 25 years old next April, in fact. He started this magazine, and he was having trouble with it at that time, and I remember criticizing it. I was an editor. I wanted to be a broadcast journalism student uh, when I moved to Vancouver. And so I wrote a list of what you could do to improve the magazine and what you could like take out of it. And he told me one morning, well, I fired everybody. I hired you now as the assistant editor. I'm going to edit. We're going to create a whole new magazine. So we started Cannabis Culture as a print edition. It was incredible. We didn't have any templates. Every page was a work of art. Then we had the DEA raid come months later. And he was suddenly facing serious time. And he said, Jody, I want you to be in charge of the head shop that we had and the magazine. And then we his seed business ended and we started so the vapor lounge. So you had to continue lounge. on with the legacy. Yeah, and I ran for office. The hard time. Yeah, ran for office at the BC Marijuana Party twice, with the BC Green Party mm-hmm. twice. I was the policing and crime critic. And then I sought a liberal nomination. I testified to the Washington State Legislature. I campaigned. I marched in the streets. I did so much work. Right. Okay. So Mark gets out of jail and uh, shortly after, this is where the chain of cannabis culture dispensed open up across the country. Yeah. Just take me back to that time. At the height, how many were operating? I know for sure there was one here in Toronto. Well, when Mark got out in the middle of 2014, I was in the middle of my liberal nomination campaign and I was kind of the de facto pot spokesperson for the party on the legalization issue. I was getting members and raising money and rallying support. And Mark came back and we were struggling. Like, prison is not cheap. Visiting him in the U.S. prison system, not cheap. And it was so hard. It was so many years of being just barely getting by and then he got out and all these dispensaries were happening and Trudeau was saying on the news in Winnipeg and elsewhere we're going to legalize these dispensaries and we thought well why don't we open up a dispensary but instead of medical we'll do recreational and medical for all adults no discrimination a model of what legalization should look like and where we can have lounges like Amsterdam make a lounge and a weed store in one that's what legalization should look like where was all the supply coming though from from growers that have always been growing it's medically licensed in many cases and the medical marijuana program the federal government authorized those growers serve patients who need it and they know that so many other patients can't get doctors to approve them and cannot get access to the system that exists so they would grow extra to provide dispensaries with the medicine that's helping other patients so that their cancer patient they're designated for gets theirs but so do other patients who need access too and it's growers who are craft artisans who have been families and generations growing this plant and being forced to hide underground but justice department statistics show nine 95% of all growers who get arrested are not connected to gangs or organized crime. I was going to say, the claims, the claims are that... Um, They're gangsters and bad people. No. Well, the organized uh, crime supplying the operation. And that's... Now, here's the joke. The three of us right here... You guys know that I'm smoking a joint. If this was illegal and you both knew, we're all guilty of, like, organized crime. Cannabis culture shop. So how many did you have running back then? And what oh, was the it, first 2015? store we opened was April 29th, 2016. 16, so we okay. only opened, in tw- like, very recently. That was in Vancouver. And then we came to Toronto and opened two shops on Queen Street West and Queen Street East. Sure. And that was in May. It was, coincidentally, the same day that Project Claudia happened. At the height, 
of the dispensary buzz in Toronto. Project Claudia mobilized, busting the pot shops, leading to 90 arrests along with 186 trafficking charges and 71 proceeds of crime charges. So we came to do our grand opening of our first Toronto shop and suddenly these raids are happening. So we went to the police headquarters the next day with the media and there was a rally outside with patients and, and you sort of stormed on video. You sort of stormed the news in the audience. by the police chief. I was asking yeah. tough questions alongside other journalists and I got emotional and it is on video. And the court said medical marijuana must be made available. That is why there are licensed producers. They benefit from the dispensaries laying the groundwork. Where are the, Where victims? Are the victims? Where are the victims? What I said is 100% true. It's exactly what happened and unfolded. It's also the day the criminal investigation began into me, and that went on for 10 months, and I got arrested. Yeah, I, I do want to get to that, but during the sort of the heights. Stores. So the franchise model rolled out so fast, but... Even though the documents say we got money for each franchise opening, we didn't. We Just before getting arrested, like the day before, we finalized our franchise document of what we wanted to ask because I had over 300 emails across this country begging to do business and open a shop. Mm -hmm. So we're like, we need to reply. We made up a document with lawyers yeah. and we asked for a certain amount of money. Yeah. We never got that from any of our first franchisees. We got it, we were going to ask for it and that's the police documents found these contracts and said, oh, they must have made all this money. No, we didn't. We were actually gifting to people the opportunity to set the model and see if it worked because we couldn't, we'd never sold pot before. Right. So for us it was like, could we even sell our brand as a pot selling brand? We have to try it out. It went super fast. Super and fast. the maximum was, I think we had 30 locations listed, but m more than half never even opened or got shut down the next day, including the five in Montreal. During this time, though, you guys were making a fortune. I remember Mark showing City News Mark's some, store was some tax receipts. Mark Emery, since his early activism in London, Ontario, is a money-making genius. Right. But I was the owner of Cannabis Culture. Mark was a franchisee. I see. I he didn't see. even organize the whole thing. I did. I was. I'd been the owner for like eight, right. nine years of the company. He was a franchisee with an incredible shop. He did it his own way, as he always does, and he gave tons of money away because that's what well, he does. I was gonna say. I remember after the raids happened on cannabis culture, Mark showed us tax receipts, hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes Pay in uh, that taxes. was paid to the federal government. Yeah. Now, my question is, was that strategy to try and keep the government off no, off your to tail? To demonstrate, hey, we want to be legal. We're paying everything legally right. we're open we're above board you can come find us you can call us up check us out you're just trying questions. to show them that you're a legit it's business like, yes, and a responsible absolutely. business owner look at the jobs you can create look at the money we can create look at the economic opportunities we're creating for so many people the employees and for the customers everybody's enjoying it everyone was happy that's why it was so popular people go why did those dispensaries open up so fast well, geez, why do yoga studios open up so fast? Those yoga people, geez, they sure love that. It's getting everywhere. And same with coffee. Coffee shops on every corner. And that's because people want it. It's supply and demand. It's so supply basic. So all those dispensaries that opened up, they should have just legalized and regulated them into existence like Uber and Airbnb. They right, they were operating, I guess, in the gray disruptors, market. Or, yeah, disruptors yeah. who break the law but abide by the rules in every possible way they can and say, please give us a license. And the government says, no. They go, well, please give us a license. And the government says, no. And then the government says, hey, you don't have a license. We're going to punish you. We go, hey, we've been trying to get a license. Only you could give it. Take me back to Pearson Airport. We're getting in an Uber, speaking of. Sure. And I had just done media, just in a round table about cannabis legalization. And we're going to go speak at Spanibus. And we get out of the Uber and these plainclothes officers, and that's how they get you. They throw you off. They plainclothes and just come up and say, hey, Mark. And 
he says yes and they said you're under arrest and Mark turns and passes me his wallet and then I step back and they say Jody and I'm like yeah and they go you're under arrest too so we're detained and we asked to call our lawyer we didn't have any money we didn't have any weed we didn't have anything with us we're not smuggling weed and stuff that's not our thing Smugglers. at this point did you did you know or no I had no know idea. that like all of your shops had been raided across the country no they hadn't been that's oh, the thing been. and they that, got you first and, and that's they why in. they refused to let us right. call our lawyers because when we got taken into custody that night and I got strip searched the first time and then we finally got our lawyer we got up into court the next morning and they arrested our co-accused in court at that time so we were not able to get our bail hearing they arrested our co-accused in the courthouse and that was all unfolding I, on live TV. I was standing there when officers walked into the courthouse and they arrested some of your store managers and associates and yeah. just marched them out in handcuffs. And then, and then the yeah. judge that was assigned to our case said that he was having a heart attack and needed to leave so there's video of him leaving on a stretcher because I don't think anyone wanted to handle our case. And then we had to go spend a night in maximum security because we weren't getting bail that day so I had to get driven out to Vanier Women's facility and the process of being arrested and detained and handcuffed like cattle and put in a little metal box um, and hustled around and you can't see and all you hear is the beeping when you back up to get more prisoners in. It's very degrading. Not pleasant and that should not be happening to peaceful nonviolent people. Was that your first reason. time being arrested? Yes. So my real but arrest handcuffed strip shirt jail. We spe I spend that night. We go to court the next morning and all day it takes to get out. Um, and we finally get out on bail, and um, yeah, that was that was not a good time. And a lot I, of your associates, those charges were dropped. People working in your stores or store managers, those charges deal, were dropped. Yeah. But y you and Mark both got convicted. Well, and two or three of our co-accused, also store um, owners, had also took a plea deal. But okay. we got 18 people's charges withdrawn completely. Um, 180 different charges withdrawn against those employees. What who were got you charged. convicted of? Was it trafficking? I agreed over to a plea deal with trafficking over three kilograms and possession of the proceeds of crime. So that's money laundering, they say. Even though I pay taxes on every single dollar I earned, I'm totally. But I guess it was weed money, but everybody has a dollar in their pocket that came from a weed deal at some point in time. So, as a convicted criminal in Canada, yeah. how has that affected your life since then? Oh, it's been very tough. Uh, Royal Bank closed my account without any reason to again I had I didn't even have much money in it if I had money the police would have said it if I had bank accounts full of cash I got nothing I don't have a car I don't have a TV you know I can pay my rent in Vancouver and I can manage to come out here and work on my new cafe business but you know it was uh, it was tough because Royal Bank had been my bank since I was a kid and losing your bank account is extremely difficult traveling too has this hampered your ability to go to the States well the United or, States yeah, is a definite no not and then when I joked about you know if I had to find another job what would I do well when I was younger I loved being a, a camp counselor and a summer camp counselor and I used to do babysitting I can't do that now I've got a criminal record so I can't do that. That's sad. I love teaching art. It would be fun to work with kids and help them out and but stuff. But you have but a record. That would never happen right, right now. And now, and I'm also finding out that even when the governments like BC say, well, a, a criminal record for pot won't necessarily automatically ban you from getting a pot business, but money laundering or proceeds of crime, and I took that in my deal. 
I mean, so, that's, it's, so you might not actually get a license to sell cannabis here uh, yeah. at Jody's Joint in Kensington. Well, right now, you're just doing the coffee it. thing. Yeah, we're selling hoping. coffee and hemp baked goods, and I'm trying to showcase all my hemp advocacy. I want to focus more on that. It's an exciting, positive thing. Using hemp from building materials and food. But this is but not what you envisioned. You were hoping <laughs> to sort of be a leader in this industry, and I, I feel it's fair to say that the pioneers and prohibition victims who made this all possible should get at least an equal opportunity to the police officers and politicians who had us arrested to get into this business. At least equal opportunity. Maybe not first in line. If real fairness was at play, we made it happen. You know, it's like the story of the little red hen. She asks all the other animals to help her make the bread, and they all say no. And then she finishes making the bread after all the hard work of harvesting and doing it, and they all say, can we have some? And she says no to them, and she feeds it to their her kids. But in our version, when we make the bread and do all the work and baked it, the other animals say, hey, you're not allowed any of it, get out of here, and then they get the bread. And that makes me a little bit sad, because that's just not quite fair. But I don't know, we're working on fixing the unfairness. That's my next campaign and activism. Well, I did want to get into that. Right now, thousands and thousands of Canadians are sitting on pot possession charges, possession convictions. And the government on legalization day announced pardons for those um, who are convicted of possessions 30 grams or less. It's in- symbolic. It's nothing but words. Okay. It's uh, it's even the advocates of Cannabis Amnesty, the campaign working for this, say it, that doesn't do anything. It's still a record. It can be released again. It shows up on things. We need expungement. We need to recognize that cannabis should never have been a crime Completely wiped in the first clean place. is what you are going to be fighting for Absolutely. Now. First step is easy to argue for possession because Canadians all know somebody who has that and it's an easy compassionate sell and it's most of the records but we need to start talking about what other US jurisdictions are talking about saying that if you sold cannabis in a consensual peaceful transaction and nobody was hurt and there was no violence or force that should not have been a crime either you know and so we have to start with at least trafficking under three kilograms because that includes bud tenders at dispensaries well, mine is over three over kilograms three. and so there's under three and over three the small times and the big bad like me which is ridiculous but this is what the law says and so i feel the first wave will be possession the second wave will be small time bud tenders right. because why can johnny sell weed at a government store but his brother joey has a conviction and can't get a job anywhere for doing the same thing a year ago it doesn't make sense so i think they'll deal with dis- uh, dispensary small-time trafficking bud tenders that sort of thing that but will take time i think it's going to take three years to get to that point if the, i'm in last in line and i it'll take 10 years before i can even apply for a pardon now i did ask ontario's attorney general caroline mulrooney if she supports amnesty and her answer was no so what about the argument that uh what you did at that time it was illegal so you still have to pay the price you broke the law well it's funny you know Many bad laws have only changed because brave people were brave enough to break them. We are talking specifically about civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience, breaking a bad law openly to say this law is bad and needs to change. And the only way to change it, because the government will not change it, is to break the law and go to court and win in court and have the court order the government. And that's the only way we've ever had anything changed for marijuana. Is it fair to say to the gay rights activists, the ones who marched for gay marriage, yeah, okay, thanks for paving the way, you can't get married, other people can, but you can't. Like, that doesn't make sense. We have to acknowledge that the people who change these laws by breaking them openly, peacefully, They need to be recognized, and that's going to take decades. So this continues on for you. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about it, (laughs) and yes, (laughs) Yes. it runs deep. You know, it's like the wall of cannabis prohibition is falling, and one big chunk just fell down. 
there's still a lot more standing. There are still barriers. There are still restrictions. There are still a lot of problems. We just got to keep kicking. Jody, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. A special thanks to Jody Emery for joining us and a big shout out to my producer, Ryan Clark. You can listen to weekly episodes on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com and of course, subscribe to us on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can rate us, review us, tell a friend, and you can always reach me on Twitter at Shauna City News. That's Shauna with a U. And hey, I may know an awful lot about weed, but hashtag, I'm not a pothead. Talk soon. Next time on The Legal Podcast. You can't become addicted to marijuana, clearly. Um, And I think people need to get their heads around that. We take a look at the dark side of cannabis. It Mm -hmm. says early and regular use increases the risk of psychosis and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. That's true.